Well, g'day there and welcome to the Oak City Church podcast. We are so glad that you've joined us today for another encouraging message from our Sunday gatherings of Oak City Church. If we can connect with you in any way, please see us at oakcitychurch.com.au or check out our socials online. We hope to see you in person soon. Good to see everyone this morning, and hopefully, fingers crossed, um, that this may be our last week of having to wear masks as part of our gatherings. Um, and I just want to echo what Ben had to say before, um, with Edie Stevenson coming to visit us next week. Now, for those of you who don't know Edie, who Edie is, um, Edie has been coaching some of our leaders for the last probably nine months around what does it mean to be leading a church, influencing a church, passionate about being a church that wants to have disciple-making at its heart. You know, Jesus' last words to his followers before he ascended to be, um, to be with the Father was go and make disciples. And sometimes in churches we spend so much other time doing everything else rather than actually making disciples. And so next week, Edie, along with her husband Dale, will be here. They'll be encouraging us. Like Ben said, they're flying all the way from Melbourne to be here as part of a week of intensives that they're doing. I just can't encourage you any more to be here next Sunday if you can, because it's going to be both a great blessing to us, but also we really, uh, for, for the nine months that we've been, been coached by Edie, it's all been online. And so it's going to be great for even our team, our church, to see her in the flesh and actually hopefully coach and save give her a hug. Um, hey, before we jump into um, the message this morning, like we do every week at, um, at Oak City, just wanted to give 30 seconds just to go, hey, was God saying, um, speaking anything to anyone that they felt like they wanted to speak up about, um, remembering, and I say this every week, but it's not about one or two people getting up the front, it's actually about God's family coming together. So I'm just going to give 30 seconds, and if anyone wants to share what maybe God was saying to them, you do that, and then we're going to jump into um, our message this morning. Absolutely all good. And I was reading just a bit of a segue. I don't know. No, I, I know I don't need help in segues, but I like to take segues left, right, and center. But I was reading a great book this week around we see so often in the Bible it says, Be still and know that we're God. But so often in our church service we just like to rush through. We don't actually be still together. And so even just for 30 seconds to be still together is, is a precious gift. Um, can I say as well, before we jump into continuing our series on Ephesians, um, which I'll talk to in just a second, I feel so sorry as I look around to my brothers and sisters that have to wear a mask and glasses, because I can just see the fog in that happen, and I'm like, they need windscreen wipers with glasses. It's, I just feel for you. <laughs> I just had to say it. Um, yeah, so, just for a laugh. So um, Ephesians, we started it last week. Thank you so much um, uh, to Taryn for doing that. And for those who missed it, last week we did also watch a short video 
by the guys at the Bible Project that really just gave a big picture sketch of what the book of Ephesians is all about. I'm not going to show that again, but if you do want to jump onto YouTube and have a look at that, you are more than welcome to do that. But it just gave a really helpful picture of what um, the book of Ephesians, the letter to the church in Ephesians is all about. And if you don't know much about Ephesians, just a couple of quick things. Firstly, it was written by Paul, who many of you would know was a terrorist to an apostle. Um, he had such a radical life change and has potentially become the most impactful uh, Christian leader, really, since Jesus. It was written to a very young church in the city of Ephesus, um, a church or a city that Paul visited twice, as recorded in the book of Acts. So this was a church that was very close to Paul's heart. He knew them. It wasn't just like a faceless people he was writing to. Just like us sitting in this room, they were brothers and sisters. They knew each other. They had a relationship. Um, and it's a very short book of the Bible. I would encourage us today that if you haven't read through um, the book of Ephesians, the letter to the church in Ephesus, go home and at some point this week, just do it in one hit. Because often we break it up bit by bit, um, and actually the church would have read that in its wholeness. And sure, there's so much that we're going to be diving into in this series, but that was a letter. Remember, that was a letter of encouragement to uh, lift up, to extol, to challenge, to correct. Um, as this church was trying to work it all out. And it can be read in about 20 minutes. It's, it's, it's only about 3,000 words. But I really want to encourage us, as we spend the better part of the rest of this year looking at the, the letters of the church in Ephesians, to actually make it our story. Not just a separate book that we're analysing, it's actually our story. And so I wanted to quickly touch upon that before I actually get... Um, Jono's going to jump up in a moment and read us um, the verses that we're focusing on today. But I wanted to quickly touch upon... The reason that we're focusing so intensely on this book of the Bible. And the first reason is that um, the church in Ephesus was strikingly similar to where we find ourselves as a church. Strikingly similar in a number of ways. The first being that they were a church plant where no Christians had been before. Now I know that there's plenty of other great churches and Christians in Blacktown, but they were pioneering something new in that area. And that's exactly what we're doing as a church plant. We're pioneering something new. They were working it out as they went. And, and even more challenging is that, you know, even within this, you know, Paul wrote this letter in 62 AD. So in the space of 60 years, Jesus had come along, he'd enacted this incredible movement, and they were trying to work it out as they went. And they were trusting God and believing that the good news of Jesus could actually affect their city. The second reason is that um, Ephesus was a very prominent city. Um, for those of you who don't know the context of what Ephesus was like, it was a melting pot of cultures and philosophies. It was an absolute melting pot. It was one of the largest cities in the Roman world, in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. It was about four miles inland, and it was a very strategic city where east met west. It was a trade route. So lots of people coming in and out of that city. It was a transient city. Um, it was almost 250,000 people in the city. So it was a large city by ancient terms, and it was very multicultural. Lots of competing worldviews. Lots of different people coming together from different places. And as part of that, one of the things that most characterised the city of Ephesus was that it was overshadowed by the Temple of Artemis, which was a Roman god, uh, otherwise known as Diana, and she was um, the Roman god of sexual fertility. Now, I wouldn't dare put it up on a screen for us this morning, but the statue is literally a woman covered in breasts. 
<laughs> that was that was the, the statue, that was the figurine of Diana, the, the Roman god of sexual fertility. And the temple that was committed to her, that Ephesus was so known by, was right in the centre of the city. And it was a huge temple. You're probably thinking it was like a, a little old thing like across the road. But it was by modern day standards the size of a football stadium. 24,000 people could come into this temple at any one time. It was a huge temple, and it's still to this day one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And so all of Ephesus was um, overshadowed, always could see it. You knew that lots of people were coming to the city because of it, and it affected the political structures, uh, the spiritual structures, and um, the, the financial structures as well, which we'll get to in just a moment. Another point worthy of note about that is that Ephesus also had this strong obsession with um, spiritual power in the form of magic and the occult. There was a strong sense in which people were intrigued by magic, as we're going to get to in just a moment. Um, when the, the good news of Jesus began to get lifted up, that actually that, that, that offended a lot of people. That actually caused a lot of people to come against the good news of Jesus, as well as the worship of Caesar, because there was an imperial cult in um, Ephesus as well. And so you can see, as the good news is coming to Ephesus, this would have rattled a lot of different structures and beliefs and philosophies. There was a mishmash of pluralism, there were dark powers, there was the idolatry of celebrities in the form of Caesar and politics. Um, and, and in many ways, I actually couldn't think of a better way to describe that town. If we were to be really quite honest about it, it's a mishmash, it's a melting pot, it's all in there together. This is why it is so important for us as a church as we wrestle with how can we capture uh, a vision of what it means to love Blacktown, but also to recognise where God is calling us to advance the kingdom. Um, and in our theological vision for Blacktown, you know, there's great, smarter people who have talked about this idea that with every place, with every city globally around the world, there's parts of it that we want to resonate with Blacktown. That we want to celebrate, that is made in the image of God, and we go, absolutely. We can see things of Blacktown that we just support and go, amen. But also, there's a dissonance. There's things that we can see in Blacktown that, quite frankly, are not of the kingdom. That, quite frankly, um, may come from forces of spiritual powers, things that are unseen and we can't necessarily see, that actually we want to bring the good news of Jesus into it. The second reason um, that we're really jumping into this book of the Bible is that we want to catch what the church in Ephesus had. And now, of course, ultimately, that's Jesus. Yes. But the, the boldness with which the, the Ephesian church had came from the authority that they had through experiences, through pain, through being with Jesus themselves. And as one such example, I'm not going to read the whole thing um, right here because I actually want to get to our verse today. But in Acts chapter 19... Um, there was a whole bunch of uh, Jews who had gone around trying to um, deliver spirits much like Paul had started to do. Again, you know, it's the, the, the supernatural, the spiritual is part of what it means to follow Jesus. And these Jews went around trying to do these things. But then it came to a time that one day the evil spirit said to these Jews, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? Now, I say that this morning not to say, who are you, you are nothing, but to actually say, if we don't have the authority of Jesus in us, we're living without something that we're supposed to live with as followers of Jesus. It's 
not just a good idea, it's a God idea to have that level of authority that comes from being in a relationship with Jesus. And if we read on, um, in verse 20, it says that in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So we, we follow Jesus not just as a good idea, but as a relationship. Something that we can have for ourselves as we choose to live out the, the kingdom of God in Blacktown. It's not just according to a book, it's according to the authority that we have in relationship with the author of the world. Um, the third thing I'd say before we jump to our verse is that the kingdom reigns supreme over all competing narratives, ideologies, empires, and claims. Now, I may have mentioned it just before, but I don't know if you've noticed, but Jesus isn't necessarily... I think Jesus is, actually. But church and Christianity isn't necessarily this popular idea in our culture today. In fact, it's often walked out, laughed about, and sometimes, dare I say, for good reason, because we haven't necessarily integrated what it means to truly be followers of Jesus. But when you lift Jesus up, there is so many biblical and historical accounts. When you lift Jesus up in your life or your community, there will be pushback. I can guarantee you that. Jesus himself said, the world has rejected me. There will be trouble. That is a guarantee. And so particularly for in our city, the, the, the idols, the spiritual forces that we may not be able to see, but we know that are there, we will experience and have already as a church experience flashback. Um, again, I'm not going to read this whole verse, but pretty much what began to happen as the, the, the temple of Artemis was starting to lose money because people were going, actually, we want to follow this Jesus. We don't want to purchase all the memorabilia and idolatry and continue to fund this huge Roman cult. Actually, we want to follow Jesus. And what started to happen is the craftsmen in their day started to push back, started to say, we need to kill this Paul. We need to kill all of those that are uh, beginning to say, actually, Jesus is king and Diana is not. Or Jesus is king and, um, and Caesar is not. Or Jesus is king and, you know, the, the great Australian dream is not. That comes with a level of confrontation. Yet as followers of Jesus, we're actually called to live under a completely different lordship. And so lifting up Jesus is not some nice, neat, cooperative exercise. Often in our lives personally, or even for us as a church, we will experience opposition. Yet, as I heard someone say recently, we want to we live our lives as followers of Jesus with a humble swagger. Now, if you need a bit of translation of what that means, is that we want people who are ultimately have a posture of humility, yet still a quiet, strong confidence that Jesus wants to exude his redemptive influence through our life. A humble swagger, a confidence in that Jesus has called us as individuals, but as a church, to live this out in our world. Okay? Um, I'm going to invite Jonah up now. Jonah's going to come and read for us. I'm focusing particularly um, today on verses 7 through 14 of the verse chapter of the book of Ephesians. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his Son and forgave our sins. He has shown, he has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfil his own good plan. 
and this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. He chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. God's purpose was that we Jews, who were the first to trust in Christ, could bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so that we would praise and glorify him. Awesome. And so um, we're going to be looking at those seven verses um, in just a moment, but a couple of big things that I think are important for us to know, particularly about the start of Paul's letter um, in chapter 1. Uh, firstly, in Paul's letter, verses 3 all the way through to verses 14 were just one long Greek sentence, which is quite an intriguing thing to know, because all 202 words of them, he was just trying to get it out. He was like an enthusiastic child that couldn't, you know, contain himself. It's like when someone who's super excited about something just keeps talking, keeps talking, keeps talking, until they run out of breath and they can't get out <laughs> This was Paul just trying to get out the riches of the gospel to those who he was writing to. Um, uh, so much of, of even, you know, and we took a quick look at this last week, but uh, in a very simple terms, part one of the book of Ephesians is all about identity. And Taryn started that for us brilliantly last week. And part two is about how do we live that out. Um, these first 14 verses can be somewhat broken into three parts. There's a bit of overflow in terms of what Taryn said last week. But, and again, I don't want to dive too deep into some of this stuff, but there was three times in those verses that, um, that, that uh, John read to us. There was to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. And it was almost like Paul was trying to focus on different elements of the Trinity to say, in, in the Father, to the praise of his glory. In the Son, to the praise of his glory. And then he finishes off with that very beautiful um, mention of the Holy Spirit and how it is our seal. Um, I can just imagine, we find out later on in the book of Ephesians that there's a guy called um, Tatius, who is actually described writing all of this down for, for Paul, Paul. And I can just imagine he was, he was speed scribing. He was going non-stop, as in all 202 words of even this verse. Paul is just beautifully painting a picture of what it means to ultimately live in Christ. And, and if you were to get one thing about, you know, maybe there's two strong things that I want us to catch this morning. Um, is the idea that, that Taryn started us off on last week was that irrespective of where you are. So Paul was writing this letter in prison. He was writing in captivity. Yet he was saying that my identity is not here in prison, it's in Christ. So even for us in Blacktown in 2021, we are, we, while Blacktown is where we ge geographically reside, Ultimately, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, we are in Christ. We are not in circumstance, we are not in geographical locations. They may be the places and the seasons to which God calls us. But ultimately, above and beyond everything, we are in Christ. Paul is saying, I'm not in prison, I'm in Christ. 
I am not in captivity. I am in Christ. And I don't know about you, but as I have experienced glimmers of what Paul is talking about in my life, that completely changes the way that we see the world. I am not in you know, this particular challenge that I'm facing. I am in Christ. And that may mean I face hardship, I've experienced pain, but in Christ I receive all the spiritual blessings that are available to me. And we're going to look at those um, in just a moment. But the other idea that Paul draws us to, even in these 14 verses, is this idea of the lavish riches that are available to us. Now, um, some theologians talk about this as uh, implications upon you know, financial stewardship and the like, but ultimately what Paul is trying to say is that we have every spiritual blessing. Now, I don't know about you, but I um, grew up with this kind of sense in my head, and I think it's a, a Western concept that each and every one of us suffer from to some extent is that I don't have enough. I don't have enough money in the bank. I don't have, um, I'm, I'm behind of where I want to be in my life. Um, I don't really have what it takes. I use every excuse under the sun why I can't. Now maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm you know, bleeding on stage. But I'm willing to take a guess that that's each and every one. We struggle with this idea of I don't have enough, I don't have what it takes, I'm behind. But again, Paul, writing from prison in captivity, is saying to us as followers of Jesus, whether we are in, the, you know, in Ephesus in 62 AD or in Blacktown in 2021, that we are so much richer in Christ than we might dare to imagine. We are so much richer. There was um, a bank that used to have that slogan, which is just a great way to get you to sign up for a mortgage with them. But this idea that we are so much richer than we might dare to imagine in Jesus. You are not lacking. You are not without. You are not behind the eight ball. In Christ, you are so much richer than you might dare to imagine. And in these seven verses, which um, I'm going to have to, like I said, lap over a little bit to, to where Taryn started us off last week, Paul identifies seven blessings of being in Christ, um, that we are chosen, that we are adopted, that we are redeemed, that we are forgiven, that we have received the gift of insight, we have received our inheritance in God, and that ultimately we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. The seven blessings that we have in Christ. And just for our last time, 10 minutes this morning, I just want to go through each one of those one by one. The first one, chosen. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ. Now Paul, in some senses, he really starts off in the deep end of the pool because that changes everything. This idea that you and I have been chosen. It's like that image, maybe that nightmare that you've had when you were a teenager or a child in school sport that you didn't want to be the one that was chosen last as you're waiting for sport tryouts or getting picked. But that you and I have been chosen. The word that's used here is the word elixdata, which literally means that you have been elected. That you have been elected by Jesus. And Paul, again, I, I was saying to Jess this morning, I think if you've been a follower of Jesus for a while, you've probably grown bored of the idea or it's just become, eh, that's cool, that Paul is writing this from being a former terrorist. 
not three years beforehand, it was killing people for saying this type of stuff. Yet Paul is able to say that his salvation was not grounded in himself, but in the free gift of God. He was living out of a deep and liberating realisation that your salvation, that my salvation, is not based out of anything that we have done. And sometimes it's, it's a beautiful gift to grow up in a Christian family, don't hear me, but sometimes we need to unlearn the entitlement that we have. It is a free gift that you have done nothing to deserve. Nothing. And that strikes the very heart sometimes of our efficiency, our wanting to achieve. I'm going to prove how true I am. But Paul's saying, you have done nothing. You have been chosen. And for what? It goes on to say that we would be holy and blameless. Now, holy is a word that has a lot of connotations. Some of us kind of, you know, have images of priests or whatever it might be. But holy literally just means set apart. Set apart for God. You've been chosen to be set apart for God. The next um, blessing that Paul gives us is adoption. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family. Through Christ Jesus. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. Even just that idea that that would give God pleasure to adopt us. I think some of us have this false image of God that now that I've become a Christian, he has to deal with me. But it gave him great pleasure. Enormous pleasure. And in Christ, to be sons and daughters is now our destiny. Paul here uses the very same word that is used elsewhere in the New Testament of being the beloved. That God has brought us as those who were away from him, now as sons and daughters, into the same relationship that Jesus had with the Father. Get that for a second. The relationship that is at the very centre of creation, the Trinity, we have been brought into that. A theologian called J.I. Packer said it this way, that adoption is the highest privilege that the Gospel offers. The highest privilege. Adoption is a family idea. To be right with God as judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God as Father is even greater. God is not just a far-off judge. He is Father. And you'll begin to see, another theologian talks about the idea that each of these spiritual blessings build upon one another. You know, it, it, it deepens, it deepens, it increases, it increases. And so we are created to enter into that relationship. Uh, the third blessing that Paul talks about is redemption. Verse 7, he is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom. Purchased is the operative word there. With the blood of his son and forgave our sins. Now, um, redemption or purchase, as I just said, is not simply a synonym for salvation. Uh, another theologian by the name of Leon Morris talks about this idea that it means to loosen. It means to free. It's like clothing when it's really kind of um, stripped on you, it means to loosen in order to find captivity. And that's just, again, not just an idea, that's actually the redeeming grace of what Jesus has done. And this idea that apart from that, we're in bondage. We're held captive. We can't loosen ourselves to truly enjoy the riches of these spiritual blessings that we're talking about. We are held by much stronger forces than we can even um, imagine, whether it be the law whether it be the curse of sin or spiritual powers that keep us captive. 
But in Christ, we have found the redemption that we need for freedom. And he's came to pay that price so that we might be free. Um, in that very same verse, Paul talks about forgiveness. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Now, again, this is not just another synonym. And it's important for us to realise here that you can, um, that, that you can uh, redeem someone yet not forgive them. Think about that as an ideal. Jesus could have redeemed us yet not wanted to have relationship with us. Yet what Jesus has done on the cross is actually to establish a relationship with us. Forgiveness is the restoration of a relationship. And, and elsewhere um, in the Bible it talks about that we're held captive by sin and transgression and inequity. All of those things in essence literally mean to miss the mark. To step over the line where we should move. To, to become twisted in ways that we can't save ourselves from. But Jesus, in what he has done on the cross and the resurrection, has decided to have a relationship with us, despite that. And by his blood, he forgives those things. Verse 7, 8 and 9, beg your pardon. He talks about insight. He has showered his kindness on us, along with wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us his mysterious will, or other translations say, his mysterious plan regarding Christ which is to fulfill his own good plan. In Jesus, we have been given the keys of the kingdom. We have been given the keys of what God's amazing plan is. You don't need to be a Jedi master to unlock that. That's not, you need to climb up to a certain extent of being a Christian in order to have that. In Christ, we have the keys to the kingdom. And that mystery is God's program for the world. We, have, we now have that ministry. Um, and a, another theologian talks about this idea that everything, you know, this plan that Paul is talking about, all the lines of history can be summed up under the headship of Jesus. I actually really like that translation that John used, that he was going to make Jesus the head again. Um, the word that's used um, in the, the Greek here is a word kephale, which literally means to come under the head. And so some people have talked about this idea when Jesus is not the head, we're all running around without our heads on. We're decapitated. It's the same root word. That we are running around without our heads on, but it's only when Jesus is the head that everything is restored and in order. That is the great plan with which God is going to um, bring about in Jesus' return one day. Um, our second last one, verse 11, inheritance. Furthermore, we are united with Christ. We have received the inheritance from God. For he chose us in advance and makes everything work out according to his plans. Jesus is our inheritance portfolio. Our greatest inheritance is God. Our greatest inheritance, sure, while we may have ambitions for wanting to leave things for um, our children and inheritance and that kind of stuff, which is beautiful, the richest inheritance that you can offer is actually God. And actually, other theologians have talked about this idea that when Paul is writing this, we are also God's inheritance. That his people, ever since the beginning of time in Exodus, his people were actually his, his prized possession. Um, and as we begin to capture a vision of that, it's kind of like when you, when you buy your first home and you become a homeowner, 
when you, when you have a mortgage. Um, funnily enough, despite the fact that you've got this huge loan that you're paying back to the bank, you're still spending more and more money on that loan. Paul, uh, uh, big about Ben knows this well because renovation and rescue over here. But you begin to spend money on it. And, and I'm not making a financial point here. I'm saying as we begin to capture a vision of Jesus as our inheritance, we invest ourselves more and more and more and we give ourselves over um, almost like God's possession that we want to advance his kingdom. And last one. The one that Paul wraps up this little 202 word long sentence is this. Sealed by the Holy Spirit. Verse 13 and 14. When you believed, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit. whom he promised a long time ago. And the Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance that he promised. That he has purchased, by, um, he has purchased to us his own people. He did this so that we would praise and glorify Him. The Holy Spirit is the mortgage papers. The Holy Spirit is the down payment. The Holy Spirit is the seal of approval on our life, much like the prodigal son who actually received the, the signet back in order to seal with the family crest. We've got the seal of God upon our lives. I often hear people say, you know, in different church circles, whether it might be evangelical or um, Pentecostal, um, you know, this kind of great talk about um, where is the Holy Spirit on that? If you believe Jesus in your heart, you have the Holy Spirit. It is impossible to know Jesus without the Holy Spirit. That is a guarantee. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And the word that's used there literally means down payment. The Holy Spirit is our down payment. That's how we know. That's how we live out. And then we get to do incredible things out of that place We are chosen in Christ. We are adopted in Christ. We are redeemed in Christ. We are forgiven in Christ. Maybe you just need to take a step back this morning and go, I've grown complacent with this as an idea. We have received insight and inheritance and the seal of approval from God in the form of the Holy Spirit in Christ. You and I are richer than we might ever dare to think or imagine. Paul is writing this out of a prison cell to goodness sake. We are richer. We have everything that we need. We are not behind. We are not without lack. We are richer than we ever might dare to imagine. And we get to propel that out of our lives and live that out in Blacktown. That is the reason why this is so, so important. And so, Father, we just want to, even in these seven verses that we've been looking at this morning, the riches of the blessing that you have given us. We want to, we want to say sorry if there's ever been times in our life where we've taken that for granted. We know that sometimes we've missed the mark or stepped over the line, but in you, what you have done for us by the free gift of grace, which is not something that we have earned, we just receive it again this morning. We would just ask, Lord, that by the illumination um, of the Holy Spirit on the Word of God this morning, that we might realise again afresh just how rich we are, just how without lack we are. Lord, that we would experience today 
the richness of the spiritual blessing that we live in. That we, while being here in Black Day in 2021, are ultimately found in Christ. Thank you that you are our home. Thank you that you invite us into relationship with Father, Son, and Spirit, the relationship that is at the centre of the universe. I pray a fresh realisation on each and every one of us this morning. That that would be something that would go from head knowledge to heart knowledge. That we realise the seal that is upon us to do the good works that Jesus has invited us into. That we can relate to you just as Jesus did. As one who was able to cry, Abba, Father. That's like um, the most intimate expression that we could have as sons and daughters. And that just as our brother Paul has written to us, that that would be our home. That would be our identity. And everything would flow out of that. So we commit all of this to you. We pray that it seeds in our heart to have good soil. And we ask, um, this week we might have another reminder of that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Alright folks, well, I hope um, while that, that message was a bit more teachy, a bit more, you know, there's, there's lots in these verses that we're looking at, I would pray that it also really encouraged us this week as maybe we find ourselves living out of different places. Um, we're going to have more coffee, more food, wish Rosie more celebration. Little Rosie's birthday today, if you haven't already given her a hug. But um, another round of coffee in hand. I hope you have a wonderful week. Again, just a reminder, um, the wonderful Edie is here with us. I just realised I said wonderful about 10 times. Um, and Edie is with us next week. It'll be so great if we could all come along and be part of that together. But have a great week. Wonderful. <laughs> Thanks, folks. <laughs>